This week, Wansley returns, and in a huge treat for sports fans, he presents former Australian captain, selector, and Hall of Fame member, Greg Chappell. Welcome to the Camberwell Hockey Podcast. A huge thank you to Greg for giving his time to share some great insights and patiently dealing with some technical issues we had with the remote recording. We've had to use the audio recorded over the internet this week, so our sound has a couple of glitches here and there, but nothing that detracts from the stories. As you'll hear about later, Greg is doing some terrific work with the Chapel Foundation, working to raise money for homeless youth. Please take a moment to look up the foundation at thechapelfoundation.com, follow them on social media, and if you're in a position to help, please consider contributing to the cause. Here's Wanzi. Greg, uh, thank you very much for joining us to the Campbell Hockey Podcast uh, this afternoon. It's a um, great privilege for us to have a uh, an esteemed sportsman. Um, uh, certainly anyone of my vintage or, or older is incredibly familiar with um, your uh, your sporting record, your cricket history. Uh, for the younger folk, um, you'll still be seeing it and hearing about it on television because of this great, uh, great coverage. I, I guess that actually, just as an opening point, Greg, um, TV really came to the fore for cricket as you um, probably moved through your career. You know, it started off black and white. I think bowlers come in from one end. You couldn't see the back of the batsman on ABC. And at the end, you finished and you're wearing coloured clothing. Yeah, it was it was. Quite a, I suppose our career spanned a very interesting time in, in Australia. There was a lot of change going on, obviously, the end of the Vietnam War and lots of demonstrations and lots of pushback from society generally against um, authority figures, governments in particular. And the cricketers were no different. Sport really is a reflection of what's going on in society often. But it was a time of great change. It was an exciting time to be playing cricket. It was an, uh, an exciting time to be playing cricket for Australia. I came in just at the start of a you know resurgence in in Australian cricket. You know we'd had a lean stretch for for a few years. Uh, my brother Ian became captain. Dennis Lilly, Rod Marsh, myself, and a few others started all around that that time. Um, and you know we started to have a have a pretty good period. It wasn't a great time as far as pay for sportsmen went and particularly for, for cricketers we were getting $200 a test match at the time and there'd been a number of groups that had pro- approached us about doing some sort of off-season stuff but the board kept pushing back against that and then John Cornell who um, you may well remember as the um, manager of Paul Hogan and sort of partner uh, of Paul Hogan and his comedy shows which you know, they, they ran on Channel 9, so John Cornell had connections with Kerry Packer. Packer had been trying to get television rights from the, the cricket board and they kept pushing back, you know, staying with ABC. Packer then uh, approached all the players and we signed up to play in World Series cricket, which just coincided with colour television. So I don't think World Series cricket would have had the same impact on black and white television. So it was fortuitous from everyone's point of view. Packer was smart enough to know that live sport on television would work. What most people didn't understand was that if you didn't have Australian content, uh, well, you had to have you know, 60% or whatever you know, Australian shows on television. And running things um, you know, like um, soap operas and things like that was quite expensive. 
The beauty of playing in Australia in that era was that every ground in Australia had its own distinct personality and it had its own distinct wicket formation. You know, the pitches varied from, from state to state. You know, Perth after Wacker was really fast and bouncy. Um, Melbourne could be a little bit up and down. Um, you know, Adelaide was a pretty good batting wicket. The Gabba was also a pretty good batting wicket, not quite as quick as the Wacker. And Sydney was in between. You know, all the good bowlers got wickets in Sydney. If you had a bit of pace and you bent your back, you could get wickets. It always spun in Sydney. So if you were making runs and taking wickets all around Australia, you could pretty much go anywhere in the world because you'd made runs in the sort of conditions that you would find in India, Pakistan, England, West Indies. England was probably the most challenging place to bat because the ball moved around a lot more off the moist surface and you know, grassy surfaces. So in, um, with England, uh, you mentioned that was probably the most challenging. Um, I've often heard people talk about swinging ball you've got to play later. How, can you remember back to how you might have prepared for that or were you just, was that an instinctive thing or did you have to sort of a month or two out do particular things? Can you remember? It became more instinctive the more you played, obviously, in those conditions. And I was lucky enough as a 19 and 20-year-old to go and play in England for Somerset in county cricket. So I got a, some exposure, and that was challenging. Those two years were probably like a finishing school for my, my batting, having grown up in Adelaide on pretty easy-paced sort of wickets um, to go to England and be challenged with the ball moving sideways off the pitch, swinging a bit more, a, a bit longer during an innings in, in, uh, in the air was a, was a real challenge. And it forced me to have to change probably the timing of your movements, change the parameters. You know, in, in Adelaide or anywhere in Australia, once you got in, basically any ball that was pitched up reasonably full, you could afford to drive at it because the bounce was going to be reasonably consistent. In England, you really had to make sure that you were getting it on the half volley. If you were driving at balls that were you know, pitching that far short of the bat and you started expansive drives at them, you were asking for trouble. So one of the skills of being a good batsman is to sum up the conditions, sum up the situation and understand what the parameters are for today. And it might be that, you know, only half volleys and half trackers you could afford to be playing shots at in some condition. But the, the real trick again was that but you still had to be looking for those scoring opportunities. If you were trying to bat to not get out, A, you wouldn't make any runs and B, you'd probably get out eventually anyway. So you still had to look to score runs, but understand what the parameters were in those conditions. Probably leads me to jump ahead a bit, but in your latter years uh, working for Cricket Australia, you did a lot of work as sort of uh, talent identification of youngsters and national selections. So the conversation you're talking about now around techniques, what was your role there and did it get down to the nitty-gritty and, and coaching? Would you be, were they the sort of issues you'd be helping batsmen with or was it more bigger, broader helicopter view? No, there was, I mean, I was head coach at the, the National Cricket Centre or the Centre of Excellence as it was when I was head coach there and working with the next generation and then as national talent manager for the last 10, 11 years, I was at Cricket Australia, was more around our youth pathways and our development programs, the winter months particularly, uh, were up here in Brisbane at the National Cricket Centre working with sort of 15 or so of the, the best under 23 players in, in Australia. And 
So it wasn't so much about technique, but uh, it was more about the mental skills and those sort of things about recognizing the the condi- what the conditions are, what sort of shots that you can play in these conditions. Um, you know, at the National Cricket Centre, we were lucky enough to have a variety of types of uh, cricket pitch. You know, we 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 initially looked at trying to import soil from India, but that was too hard from a biosecurity point of view. So we found some soil in Western Queensland that had the same uh, components of clay and um, you know soil makeup that would break up like an Indian wicket and spin like an Indian wicket. The trouble was it bounced a bit more than an Indian wicket. So whilst we you know we got closer to it, it still wasn't exactly the same. And it takes a little bit of time to adjust. You know, in Australia, our pitches bounce more than any other country in the world. Um, I think it's a lot easier. It takes time, but it's a lot easier to adjust down to bounce than it is up to bounce. So most teams that come to Australia, particularly from the subcontinent, the big challenge for them is getting used to the bounce and being able to stand up a bit taller and, and get on top of the bounce rather than letting the bounce sort of get big on you. So you know, the challenges for us is going to places like England, going to the subcontinent, India and Pakistan, Sri Lanka. And even in that small geographical space between India and Sri Lanka, for instance, the pitches were very different. You know, they both spun, but in India, even though the ball was spinning, it came onto the bat. Whereas in Sri Lanka, it sort of sat in the wicket a bit and it still spun, but it it was more of a poppy sort of bounce. So you had to be very careful to get on top of that. And it was amazing when I worked with the Indian team, you know, we would go to Sri Lanka and our blokes would struggle, wow. particularly against Muralitharan, because, you know, with his sort of skills and the, the proppy sort of bounce, it really challenged our, our guys from a timing point of view. Six weeks later, Sri Lanka would come to India and they'd belt the bejesus out of him because, you know, they were used to the conditions and the ball still came onto the bat and they could, they knew what they could do, whereas they got a bit of a shock when they got to, uh, got to Sri Lanka and so it made them a little bit more careful and when you play careful, you make mistakes. Speaking of coaching in India, um, obviously we've seen uh, in the hockey sport of hockey, um, a lot of Aussie coaches go across there with um, you know mixed experiences. I mean, generally they've been you know well received, but getting the change through all the things they want to do hasn't always been so easy. And um, uh, I think at one stage, I remember Terry Walsh telling me that uh, coaching the Indian side, he had to have um, you know half the pit, half the field uh, with the Sikhs and the other half with the Hindus. It was very difficult bringing them together to. To do to do things, you obviously had some some challenges there. But the first thing before getting to those sort of things, what was sort of the mandate as coach of India? What do you think they are expecting you to bring to the table? Was it the name Greg Chapel, or were they actually looking for a, an Australian flavour? Can you think back to what the initial contract might have been based on? Oh no, they wanted me to bring some of the um, um, you know processes that we you know we use in Australia. They they recognised that they had talent. There was no doubt that. They had plenty of talent. What they didn't have was organisation and structure around their uh, their approach. They had some players who were very professional and, and prepared really well. They had a lot of others who just relied on, on natural ability. And, and one of the things that I found when they got there was that they they played a... They relied very heavily on their natural ability. And so they played a high-risk style of, of cricket, um, particularly in, in one-day cricket. They sort of over-attacked with the bat and they under-attacked with the ball. So 
it was getting them to understand that, you know, success comes from a process, you know, it doesn't just happen. And if you're relying on uh, natural ability, you'll have some periods where you'll have some blistering success, but you'll also have some blistering failure. And, um, you know, they, were, they had players that were underperforming and, and what the board wanted me to bring was, you know, some of the process behind what successful teams and particularly successful Australian teams had been, been doing. You know, we, we had quite a bit of success um, through, the, through the time, but some of the players were challenged and there were, there were a whole lot of other issues. I mean, I, I met up with um, Rick Charlesworth, uh, who was coaching in India at the same time, and, you know, we, we had similar problems. There were so many hands in the pie that you really didn't get a chance to get a free run at it. I was lucky in the sort of 12 months in the first sort of 15 months that I was there, you know, a few months after I got there, they had a change of board. And because the board was so disorganized, the, you know, the previous board sort of didn't keep any records if the, or if they had records, they'd hidden them from the next group because they were political foes, if you like. So the new board took 12 months to sort of work out what was going on. And that was the best time because nobody interfered with us. And we just got on with, with doing the job and we had a lot of success. Then the board got settled and they knew that they had to get re-elected. Then all of a sudden the politics that um, is in all layers of life really started to interfere with selection. You know, we didn't, they had five selectors, um, but there were, all, there were always, you know, more layers that the people who selected the selectors and the people who selected the people who selected the selectors all thought that they should have a say in who played in the Indian team. And it, 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 in the end, it, it became too difficult to make it worth the, the aggravation to, to continue. But I stayed for another 18 months in India working with one of the states. And I've got to say that that 18 months was a really rewarding time. Uh, Judy was there with, with me as well. And we actually lived in India for that 18 months. Um, and it was a really good experience. Whereas the, the two years with the Indian team, we were travelling over India and touching down from time to time, um, but we weren't actually living in the in the place. But the overall experience for three and a half years was just amazing, and um, I probably I don't think either of us have been the same since in in many ways. But you know, we look back on it as a very um, you know worthwhile time in our life. Well, it's an incredible place. I mean, uh, for, for those that haven't been there, you, you couldn't explain to anybody really unless you go the passion for the cricket. Um, is just extra. I think yeah, the papers would always have a couple of pages on Bollywood, um, a couple of pages maybe on other sport and business, and the other twenty were, were cricket. And um, uh, yeah, it's, it's to be part of that would be um, unforgettable and not all of it um, positive, but not all of it negative. The um, funny when you talk about processes and individual talent, and they're a bit you know difficult to to um to put some process if you actually watch them now probably in one day cricket you'd look back and say they're now playing the way um the things you were trying to bring in because if you you know you watch Coley bat he almost plays like a machine and then when he wants to sort of take a risk he'll take a risk but he's um they, they look like they've got the hang of what you were talking about don't they yeah look you could always you knew that the next generation was going to be different um you know facilities had improved grounds were better um and one of the things that we did that changed Indian cricket greatly was, you know, up until the time that, that I got there, they basically picked their team out of Mumbai, um, Bangalore, Chennai, 
Delhi. That was basically where their players came from. And, you know, one of the things that I did when I first got there was, you know, bring your best 30 bowlers to, to Bangalore where we were, where their cricket academy was based and where I was based initially. Uh, let me have a look at the next layer of, of your bowlers and then get then a, a bunch of batsmen. We came one, Once we'd seen that, you know, there was a lot of talent there and started picking guys on merit rather than, you know, who they knew and who, who had been their coach and where they came from, it opened up everyone's eyes to the fact that there's a lot of talent that's floating around in what they call the smaller metros. I mean, the smaller metros are twice the size of Melbourne, but that's okay. Um, you know, they're, the, they're some of the small cities in, in India. But some of the best kids, some of the best talent came from these raw backgrounds where they grew up much like we did, just playing with our mates in the backyard or in the street. And you learnt the game from competing against your, your siblings and your peers. And, you know, a lot of these kids, Doni came from that sort of environment, um, you know, and he was one of the most amazing young athletes I've, I've had the pleasure to work with. You know, really smart young bloke, very competitive, um, clever, read the game really well. And I mean, from the day I met him, you knew that he was going to be an Indian captain one day. And I think he was the one that started taking them down this road. You know, he understood what we were trying to do. And Coley, of course, followed him uh, closely. And, and Coley was always, you know, really committed very professional in his own preparation, as was Dhoni. And that has gone into that next generation. And, you know, they could have the best five teams in the world without any any doubt you know, if they got organised. I remember the, the Dhoni story, I think I read, that he came out of a village, played sort of tennis ball cricket, and because he was so good, the next team would pinch pay him five bucks and he'd, he'd play for the next next village and uh, started there before he progressed. And, um yeah, he, he's been amazing to watch. Uh, Jay Stacey, a, a four-time Olympic uh, hockey player and from the Campbell Club, uh, did coach in the Indian League, Hockey League, a couple of years ago. And he did tell me that um, he took over the, the, the cellar dwellers. It was a tough gig, but he managed to get them to win four or five games in a row. But after one particular game, the president of the club came down and tapped him on the shoulder and Jay thought he was about to get some congratulations. But ah. he, uh, he hadn't been playing the nephew in the right position. So he yeah. got a tap on the shoulder and I'm sure you saw Plenty of those stories. Um, just back to the um, as national selector and sort of post post your playing career, um, I'm interested. I guess junior talent and national selectors. Cricket's a game where you know it's 11 players. It's a team sport, but there are statistics and players get picked on the runs they make and the wickets they take. So there's that uh, interesting balance between um, individual achievement and, and and team balance and team success. Has that uh, you know, if I look back at your era when you played, um, you know, it was a really incredible Australian cricket team to watch. Uh, looked at, you know, they were, they were taking on the world, as you mentioned. It was a good era. Um, money's coming to the game in a whole different way. So that also drives or can drive behaviour. Is it harder now to, um, when when players are being paid to, to make runs um, almost, is, is it hard to garnish that? And is it up to the, who's, who's the key to, to making sure that gets right? Is it the captain of the team? Is it the, the board? Look, I think you know you want the board to set the set the tone and and the direction, but then it's up to the you know the management. And then when you get down to the playing level, you know the coach of the Australian team is a misnomer, really. I mean, it's more of a management role. It's managing not only the players but all your support staff and so on. It's a it's a big job these days. You know, I had three stints as a selector from you know straight after my playing days for a period, and then twice more later on, and right to up 
till I retired at the end of the Ashes last uh, last year. But it, it certainly it became more complicated, no doubt. It, was, it seemed to be a much easier job early on uh, because it was still semi-professional at that that point. You know, I think you you became a little bit more conscious of um, the fact that this was their career, and if they got dropped, they'd been sacked basically. Whereas in the non-professional and semi-professional era, they still had another source of income in most places, most cases. So, and I think the media has got so much more involved in uh, in in all aspects of our life. Let let's face it, and social media in particularly. Um, so there's a lot more opinions out there, and um, that's good. Everyone's entitled to their opinion. Uh, but at the end of the day, you've got a panel of selectors who have to make a have to make a decision. And you know, I really enjoyed that role. I loved coaching, and I loved um, you know player development and talent um, scouting and all that sort of stuff. But selecting, building teams, I you know I always thought that was a great challenge because you know you made the point about runs and wickets, you know. If it was just about runs and wickets, the scorer could pick the team because you know who's made the runs and you know who's taken the wickets. But it's about leveraging the skills of each of those individuals to make a better team and, um, you know, which ones will work well together and, you know, where were the runs scored? You know, you look at first-class cricket, uh, even down to club cricket, you know, who were they making their runs or taking their wickets against, in what conditions and how they were, were doing it, you know, I went with Cricket Australia, about five of us, when I became talent manager. So it would have been about 2011. We went to the USA. Um, we were lucky enough to go to the Boston Red Sox uh, spring training camp. And we went to the University of Texas football program just to look at what other sports were doing. And we, we, learned, a quite, we learned quite a bit. Most of what we learned was that what we do is pretty good. And how we go about developing talent in Australia is pretty good. But a couple of the things that, that I learned, the week that we were with the Boston Red Sox was the week that they had all of their international scouts from Asia, from Central America, South America, all in Florida together, sort of, you know, having a bit of a briefing and, uh, you know, l- learning a bit more about the organisation because some of them were, were new to the system. And I remember one of the, one of the scouts from uh, South America asking the question to the head sort of scout what sort of player is it that you're looking for? And the answer I, I found was really, uh, was really interesting. The guy said that if he doesn't remind you of somebody, he probably won't be somebody. Now, what, what he was saying, I mean, I knew what he was saying at the time, but I spoke to him about it later on as well. I mean, and, and he did explain to this bloke is that you won't see somebody who's got everything that someone else had. But if you see something in a guy that reminds you of someone else, he throws like this guy or he fields like this guy or he bats like this guy, then there's, he's probably got something that can work at the, at the next level. And, you know, I saw that a lot in, in cricket. You know, when I was first a selector, we picked um, Ian Healy on a very short sort of, uh, you know, probably five or six games for Queensland at the time. But the thing that, that I saw in Ian Healy was that he reminded me of Rod Mark. Not in the way he looked, but in the way he thought, in the way, you know, he responded, his personality, his competitiveness. And you just knew that you need that toughness. You know, there was a better wicketkeeper. Technically, there was a better wicketkeeper at the time than Ian Healy. But the other guy's personality wasn't one that was going to stand up in the robust environment of 
international cricket, and particularly Healy's first tour was to Pakistan, and uh, it was it was a tough initiation. And I'm not sure the other bloke would have got through the first test, let alone the first series. That's fascinating. So the um, you did it for a long time. Now let's just get into the the interesting part of your life at the moment. Um, an incredible uh, part is your charity work. You've obviously been involved for a long time. Um, in charitable work, but recently, or in recent times, the Chapel Foundation has been focused on homelessness. Um, I'm interested in how that came about. I see John Singleton's a big supporter. I see you have annual dinners. I know from our golf club um, uh, friends that we've um, had some connection there. But do you want to tell me a bit about how that started, Greg, and where it's up to now? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, you're right. I mean, I've been involved um, with a variety of charities um, from right through my playing days to to the current day. And uh, for a number of years, I was involved with a group called the LBW Foundation, which is Learning for a Better World. It obviously had a cricket background, but it was supporting underprivileged youth in cricket playing countries around the world and paying for their um, tertiary education. And I mean, at last count, I think LBW Foundation is supporting over 4,000 young people around the world, which is fabulous, you know, great to see. A friend of mine, Darshak Mehta, was chairman for 10 years of the LBW Foundation, and he, he stepped down, A, because he'd been doing it for a long time, and B, because his wife wasn't well at the time. So he stepped back, and after his wife got better and he'd had a bit of a rest, he said to me about four years ago, we need to do something in the chapel name. And I said, oh, mate, I'm not sure about that. And uh, he said, no, no, we, um, we need to uh, do something, um, have a bit of a think about what, if you do it, what you would like to support. And um, I said, well, firstly, it's got to be young people. Secondly, it's got to be in Australia. And so at that stage, um, around that time, Judy and I had been living in Melbourne. I was working at the head office in uh, Jolly Mont at Cricket Australia and living in East Melbourne. And our front garden was basically um, Fitzroy Gardens. So I used to go into the gardens every morning and do some exercise. And I, I was struck by the number of people who slept rough in Fitzroy Gardens every night. And the middle of winter in Melbourne, as you know, is quite unforgiving. And to be sleeping outdoors in those conditions uh, wouldn't, wouldn't be very pleasant. So uh, that sort of struck me as a good cause. It, it was young people. You know, there's something like 110,000 Australians who are homeless. There's 40-odd thousand of them are under 25. And in a country as affluent as ours, I just think it's unacceptable. And so we hit on our cause and, and it's been the, the response we've had in the four years, or almost four years, has been enormous. We've, we've raised well over $2 million in, in that time, distributed well over $2 million. It'll be getting closer to $3 million. Uh, we have an annual dinner every year. Um, we, Warney was our first um, special guest and he was fantastic. Uh, we had um, Jimmy um, Barnes was our second guest. And Barnes, he had a pretty um, tough start to life in, in Elizabeth in, in South Australia or coming out from Scotland to Elizabeth. His father was uh, alcoholic and abusive and so he and his siblings spent a lot, lot of nights outside because they didn't want to come home when Dad was in that mood. So he really resonated with the audience and really connected with the audience and then earlier this year luckily in february we had ricky ponting who was equally fantastic and um, did a marvelous job and so the the annual dinner brings in about four hundred thousand uh, dollars we have a uh, an art show uh, each each year although we haven't now have that this year 
Um, we have a golf day each year and we have a sports star sleep out, which was um, August the 3rd this year, just a week or so ago. The first week of August is homelessness week. Uh, so what we wanted to do, apart from raising money, I think part of our our role is to raise awareness around youth homelessness and um, you know having sports stars to sleep out at the Sydney Cricket Ground. You know we we had we were surprised. We thought if we raised fifty or sixty thousand dollars this year in this environment, that'd be a good result. Well, thanks to the efforts of some terrific Olympians and and other sporting talent, Australian sporting talent, we raised over one hundred and thirteen thousand dollars for the night um, we don't we only raise money in awareness any money we raise goes to we're supporting six charities who do frontline work with youth homelessness and they do an unbelievable job each of these groups you know struggle for money you know ten thousand dollars goes a long way towards you know one homeless person a year so for you know, for us to be able to d- deliver the best part of a million dollars a year to these charities makes a difference. And when we started, I thought if if we can put one life back together, it'll be that'll be worth the effort from my point of view. And we've been able to achieve much more than than that because of the support from Australians, but particularly the sporting fraternity have been unbelievably supportive. And I'm sure. It's because home youth homelessness resonates with everyone. We've all been kids. We've all got kids. Uh, and I, I can remember uh, coming home one day and Judy um, had seen a young fellow sleeping in, the, in Fitzroy Gardens and she got a shock because just on the half a profile, it looked like our youngest son sleeping out at, um, you know, so there, but for the grace of God, go all of us. We are, we're all one bad decision away from sleeping in Fitzroy Gardens pretty much. So... Uh, it, it's very rewarding and uh, the support we've had has been fantastic. Yeah, I, I think it's amazing, Greg, though, that your involvement, um, you know, with all the things you've been involved in and the opportunities, things you've seen, but to spend the time and the effort at, um, you know, where you're at is, is quite inspirational. Um, I'll mention that uh, you can go to the website, the Chapel Foundation, it gives you lots of information on what's been happening, what is to happen yet, but um, and to have, <clears throat> you know, the likes of Warney and Ponting and uh, Jimmy Barnes is obviously credit to your um you know your stature but your um your passion for it so well done our club the Campbell Hockey Club certainly very um focused on what it can do on all sorts of different causes um uh so I think there'd be a really good um hearing to that I'll finish by um haven't talked a lot about your golf because that's how we sort of really met although I, I still remember meeting you back in 93 in the in the in the states on a different story but we we met um playing in a, in a golf weekend a few a few years ago and it was interesting for me, fairly nervous when you play with your, one of your childhood heroes and hold him in such great regard. And you're incredibly polite for always ball to all parts of the National Golf Club. You were very kindly helping me find numerous balls. Um, I think I somehow, the um, I'm sure I didn't cheat, but somehow I managed to get to the 18th, um, fluke a bunker shot, make a putt and, um, and halve the match, uh, which... At that point, to your disgust um, and to my great delight, we shook hands and you might have uttered an expletive, which I think was the, the first time you'd even shown um, some true chapel mongrel. And I thought I'd really made it, that I'd managed to um, to get uh, my, my hero to, to let fly with an expletive. So I, uh, I won't forget that day. <laughs> well, I'm glad you won't forget it. I'm glad I made, you, made your day, Wani, because uh, it's funny. I meet a lot of people who obviously have had a lot of joy in beating me on the golf course because they <laughs> remind me about it quite regularly. Yeah. Um, I don't remember the ones that uh, that I beat generally because it, 
it's not about the the winning or losing generally. And I think sport and life really it's about you know taking part. It is you know about competing. I love the contest. I love pitting myself against myself more than anything else. You know, I think the biggest battle in life is with yourself and um, you know trying not to beat yourself. And that's about all around mental skills and. You know, seeing that we're talking to a, a sporting audience, I think, you know, it's it's the greatest lesson that I learned was that it wasn't about my physical skills. It was more about my emotional and mental skills as, as to whether I would succeed because it was about not beating yourself. And, you know, I look at, um, you know, I, I love watching sport because you can see the moments when individuals and teams beat themselves or conversely, they, you know, they rise to the occasion and, um, you know, go on and either win the win the event or you know win a gold medal or whatever they they do. And you know, sport is the greatest theatre in the world because it's not scripted. You, nobody knows what's going to happen. And and golf's one of the great games because you know someone with a big handicap can play with a professional golfer and still be competitive. And I think that's unique in in sport. There aren't many sports where a, you know a, a gold medalist running against a you know a, a club runner. There's no contest unless you give them. You know, like the stall gift, you give them a start. But um, there's very few sports where the champions can play with the with the club club player like golf can. And um, you know, I have actively avoided playing golf for years because I thought it was a stupid game until I finished playing cricket and wondered what I was going to do next, and realised that actually it's it's one of the great challenges because the challenge is with yourself. Well, for those that uh, haven't seen Greg play his golf or played with him, he uh, has a beautiful swing with great tempo and if anything he's, he's, I'm sure people have said this to him but it reminded me very much of his classical on drive that would be his signature signature shot we will finish actually I'll ask you about that so um, that's the shot that people would talk to you um, about and for you is it the shot that you look back on in your cricket career as, you, as your favorite shot and and why why was that uh, a shot that you played so well yeah look I mean it was one shot you know the straight drive on drive probably I think it was the biggest statement you could make to a bowler was to hit the thing back past him. I, I reckon that was something that I enjoyed with Ricky Ponting, for instance. When I watched Ricky bat, you know, if I saw him hit one back past the bowler early, you knew that was going to be a day for, for Ponting. And I felt that the same thing myself. Look, I, the leg side was my strength because I grew up in an environment in our backyard in North Glenelg um, where we had the house on the offside and breaking windows wasn't an option. So the the most obvious scoring shots that weren't going to break windows were was in amongst our fruit trees. But um, again, we had to be careful with the fruit trees because the old man wasn't happy if we knocked the lemons or the um, apricots and things off the off the trees. So we had to hit the ball on the ground, and you had to hit it between the trees. And the biggest gap that that I had was either wide of you know wide of the bowler on the onside between sort of the the stumps at the bowler's end and and a straight mid-wicket sort of position. So that was a shot I played a lot as a kid. And the other shot was just behind square leg. We had the end of the fruit trees and a bit of a gap before we had a big uh, almond tree. And we weren't allowed to knock the almonds off the tree. So I had to wait for the ball to sort of get to my hip and then flick it into this gap between the, between the trees. And I, mean, I wasn't even aware of the fact until many years later, Michael Brearley, who captained England, said to me, where did you develop this shot off your hip? And I said, what do you mean? And he said, oh, you hit this thing off your hip with power. And I've never seen anyone else do it. And I said, oh, that was because that was where the gap was between the fruit trees and the, 
and the almond trees. So the environment plays a big a big part in it, that's for sure. Oh, I think everybody listening would really uh, get that. And um, what a fantastic story, I think. I remember clearly reading those stories in your books and, and Ian's as well. But um, uh, we'll finish there. Greg, look, thank you so much for your time. Um, I know over the journey you would have had to do millions of chats and interviews, but just to hear those different angles because there are so many parts to your life from the Indian part to the um, the selections and coaching and we probably talk all day but it's been absolutely fantastic um, appreciate it incredible the work you're doing with charity I'm sure everybody will look at the Chapel Foundation um, after this chat and uh, look up and see what you're doing and see what they can do to um, support what's a fantastic cause so thanks Greg good health and good wishes um, going forward. Yeah, thanks, David. It's been it's been a pleasure. I mean, the sporting community is a big community, and it doesn't matter what the what the sport is. I think you know people the people I've met through sport are, are fantastic, and Australians I think are great. So, good luck to the uh, Camberwell Hockey Club, and um, let's uh, hope you have great success in the future. You've been listening to the Camberwell Hockey Podcast. We'd like to send a big thank you to our hosting team, our guests, and you, the listener, for your support. If you enjoy the show, please give us a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. This show is recorded and produced by Camberwell Hockey Club in Melbourne, Australia. If you have any feedback, comments, or questions, please find us on Twitter at Camberwell underscore HC or see more information on our website, camberwell.hockey. See you next week.